1: SciShow tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase, starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. We are, I'm, guys. I'm a little bit bummed that Halloween is over. Yeah. Uh, we uh, all have normal was, names it's, again. It's, it's all oh, it's boring no. now. This <laughs> week, as always, I'm joined by Stefan and Jen. Hey, what's the best nutrient? Ah, uh, protein.
2: I mean you need them all okay all the macronutrients all the micronutrients yeah A, B, C, (laughs) C, A, (laughs) E not F you don't need F
1: Stephen what's your tagline? slapdash piston machine (laughs) perfect oh I like that one Sam Schultz is also here today Hello, hello Sam what's your tagline? Uh, to everybody out there listening on Election Day,
3: how's it going?
1: <laughs> is, it, is it Election Day? Yeah, that's when this one goes oh, up. Oh, oh <laughs> Lord. Well, oh, I'm glad that we're just going to go ahead and do this one on a topic that has nothing to do with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Just be distracted. Spend some time with us. Hopefully everything is on the rails. <laughs> Sari Riley is also here.
0: Hello.
1: Sari, what's your tagline?
0: Meet more. Oh.
1: <laughs> great, yeah. perfect, and I'm Hank Green, and my my uh, my tagline is Poke Mole. Every week here on Tangents, we try to get together to one-up a maze and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but also we keep score, and we care a lot about who wins, <laughs> unless we're deeply in behind, in which case we've stopped caring. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by previous conversations, we're not always great at that, so if the rest of the team deems your tangent unworthy, we'll force you to give up one of your sand bucks. So tangent with care. Now, as always, we will introduce this week's topic with a traditional science poem this week from Stefan.
2: This behavior spans many animals, big, small, and in between. A mass movement to a new place, a search for pastures more green. For reproductive purposes, or because of a lack of good munchies, or because of the changing seasons, you feel like you might just freeze. From a jellyfish that swims (laughs) daily back and forth across a lake, to a young elk following the herd, learning which path to take, to a salmon swimming upstream to fill the river with roe, to the arctic tern who travels the farthest, don't you know? They say, it's not looking good here. Our conditions can only improve. So pack it up, kids. It's time to move. Hurry up now. There's no time to dilly-dally or delay. And you can leave that behind. We'll be back here one day. One last example, an insect living its life on the ice, migrating higher up the glacier, using the sun as a compass device. That's part of the harsh life of the Himalayan wingless glacier midge. Meanwhile, <laughs> wow. I'm over here migrating from the couch to the fridge. Oh my god. <laughs>
0: Incredible.
3: <laughs> that was maybe oh, three different I, poems switched together. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> One longer
1: poem. <laughs> Oh, God, the topic of the day is migration, which is an amazing thing. I don't know at what point it becomes migration because, yes, I do have to go to the fridge Mm. to get food, but that's not migration. So, Sari, what is migration?
0: I don't think I'll have a better answer for you. It seems like it's defined pretty broadly of just the movement from one region or place or habitat to another. And Mm. then it can be a seasonal movement. So they move to, to a different habitat and come back. But we also mm-hmm. use migration to refer to just movement in general. So this is the cell biologist and me coming out, but you can talk about the migration of cancer cells. You can talk about mm. migration just as movement from one place to another, not necessarily like a herd of animals tromping mm. across the plains.
3: Can <laughs> non-organic things ever be migrating or described as migrating? Uh, like rocks or something? Uh,
2: Oh. Mm. I say no. Because it's sort of like you, you're responding to some kind of stimulus or re- reacting to like a need, and
1: a rock don't know, doesn't man. do that. This paper in Applied Ocean Research, the migration of sediment deposition due to the construction of large-scale structures in okay. Shenzhen estuary. Right. I'm yeah. down. So it just is moving, just any movement. I don't know why we just don't use that word. <laughs> at that point (laughs) science it's a science word because like orbits change over
2: time too and i guess you could say the orbits Um, are like migrating outwards or something like that
1: yeah 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 the moon is migrating away from us Mm -hmm. i think i'm pretty sure it'd be scarier (laughs) if it was headed toward us (laughs) (laughs) do you think the world would be different if we knew the moon was going to smash into us one day if it was like (laughs) fairly soon yes but like we already know that the earth is eventually doomed like that's
2: I guess yeah. w- anything that where we know that it's over within our lifetime would change, just like orgies all over the streets. Oh, God, <laughs> not on the streets.
0: I was thinking like blowing up the moon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll blow up the exactly. right. like, yeah.
1: Okay. yeah, the world would change because we'd blow up the fucking moon. <laughs> <laughs> we'd figure it out one step at a time. It's a pretty big moon. Uh, you're right. We'd figure it out.
3: We'd all be raised <laughs> to hate the moon. And just Fucking dedicate
1: moon. all of our it, Rage, rage yeah. at the moon, you orb of doom. <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> well, anyway. So we so we don't know what migration is. <laughs> Do you know anything about the etymology of migration, Sari?
0: Just more of the same. So <laughs> migration and migrate both come from the Latin migratus, which is the past participle of migrare. Which comes from the Proto Indo European root mei, so just may, I guess, which means to change or go or move. Ugh, okay. So we've we've had to describe movement for a while. This this root shows up in words like migration, but also mutation, but also commune, communicate, mm. uh, immune, and immutable. And it seems like migration started out as a word to apply to humans like moving one place to another and then mm-hmm. around the 1700s or 1800s we started using it to mean animals going from place to place
1: and now it's time for one of our panelists has prepared three science facts for our education and enjoyment but only one of them is real the rest of us have to figure out either by deduction or wild guess which is the true fact and if we do we get a sambuck if we're tricked then Sam will get the Sam Buck. You can play along at home at twitter.com slash scishowtangents where we will put up the three facts for you to click on so you can see how you measure up against us geniuses. <laughs> Sam... What are your three facts?
3: For as commonplace as the idea of bird migration is to us nowadays, it befuddled scholars all throughout the history of the Western world. Aristotle Hmm. proposed that birds he saw in spring were metamorphosing into the birds he saw in summer, for instance. Oh, wow. And British scholars thought (laughs) that birds hibernated underground like toads. And some people thought birds might even grow on trees. Uh, But eventually... (laughs) A completely coincidental discovery gave a key piece of evidence that some birds did indeed travel all over the world with the seasons. Which of these was that discovery? So number one. In 1822, a hunter in Germany shot a white crane and, upon gathering it, found that it had a strange arrow stuck in its neck. After some examination at a nearby university, the arrow was found to be made of wood native to Africa. So apparently the bird was almost the victim of another hunter in Africa before flying to Germany and getting killed there. Number two. In 1900, a muralist hired to paint the interior of a home in Scotland washed his brushes and dumped his leftover oil paints in a nearby pond. A flock of Arctic skua landed in the pond shortly thereafter staining many of the birds' robin's egg blue, much to the horror of the home's owner, a naturalist and early member of the British Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. A month later, he received a letter from a fellow member of the RSPB expressing amazement at a flock of blue arctic skua he had spotted while birdwatching. Mm. Or number three, in 1856 in Los Angeles, an Amazon parrot escaped its owner's home via an open window. Five years later, it appeared in a tree outside of the home, mimicking the voice of its owner. When the owner recaptured the parrot, he found a price tag tied to the parrot's ankle. The tag was written in Peruvian Spanish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, these are amazing. Very good. Uh, we've got three potential ways that we to help us figure out how migration was happening. A crane found in Europe with an African arrow stuck in its neck paint-covered arctic skua spotted by two distant naturalists, or three, a pet Amazon parrot escaped and returned five years later with a Peruvian price tag. <laughs> Do parrots get price tags tied to their ankles? <laughs> Maybe not now, but in the 1850s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So that part seems reasonable. I don't believe, based on no knowledge whatsoever... <laughs> that a
1: parrot can travel across
2: the ocean.
1: Yeah, well, it went from Los Angeles to Peru. Oh, Los Angeles. So, yeah. it could it wouldn't have to go across the ocean. Yeah, it still seems You'd far. It be
3: chilling far. out on the beach the whole way. But
1: up. a parrot
2: a parrot doesn't go parrot likes to stay where
1: it is. <laughs> it told me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the idea that a parrot, which was uh, presumably imported from the Amazon, would know how to get back, but I don't know, maybe.
0: I've mm. seen so many trailers for dog movies where the dogs like run <laughs> across the country.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably
3: way easier for a parrot, too. They can fly over all the danger
0: Yeah, that a it's dog true. would
1: encounter. All the danger except for the arrows that people are shooting <laughs> into cranes' necks. Yeah. <laughs> that one seems like... Totally legit to me.
0: That one seems the most fake to me because it's oh. like, how would, it, I guess I don't know anything about archery. Can something be shot with an arrow and then still move? Yeah.
2: If it's just a flesh wound and <laughs> <laughs> like if the arrowhead is fairly narrow and it just punctured instead of like creating a lot of tissue damage,
1: I could totally see yeah, what I'm surviving. What I do know about about archery is generally the arrow passes through. In movies, it almost always like ends up sticking out of your body, but in real life, the arrow passes through unless it hits like a very big bone. In which case, usually the animal is okay. You know, okay, <laughs> <laughs> it, can, it can often survive uh, that injury. Yeah,
0: the giant hole in its neck. Well, it depends on where it, what part of yeah, its neck it is. That's yeah, true, yeah, that's
1: true. I also I wondered if you could figure out by looking at a piece of wood. Like I know this African wood. But yeah. I bet you could though. Like I, carpenters yeah. now, like that, like a, like if you have a friend who's into carpentry, they'll walk into your house and be like, "Oh, that's nice. <laughs> this is is this pine?" And like, "Oh yeah, that's pine." Like they just know.
0: <laughs> they'll like look at the wood, be like, "This wood's not from around these parts," or uh-huh. however a German person is it a German person who found it?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this wood's not from around these parts. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then the paint covered Arctic. How do you say it, squaw? I say squaw. Yeah,
1: I'm pretty sure it's squaw. Squaw. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's squaw, but if Sari can keep saying squaw, that'd be great.
0: But that seems also reasonable. I I don't know how oil paint would stick to feathers, and if it would. I've just seen these images of like birds in oil slicks, where it seems to like severely yeah. impair their ability to do it. But a little bit in a puddle. Seems maybe. I think fine. it could totally
1: work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it could totally happen. the The harder to believe part is like by chance he had a distant naturalist friend who wrote to him and be, to to just like I saw a bunch of blue skuas. And they didn't have TV back then, so you know. I guess you would write if you saw a bunch of blue Arctic skuas, you'd be you'd be like, hey, I saw a weird thing. Well, I'm gonna go with my first instinct, even though Sari kind of has brought me around and say that the crane with the arrow in its neck. Hmm. I'll go with the squaw.
0: I'm so also going to go with the crane.
1: <gasps> oh, Sari, Sari threw a curveball yeah. here, which makes me feel real good. <laughs> uh, I could see no. it in your eyes that you knew that, that it was <laughs> wow. the crane. Tried to lead us astray, too. Yeah. I'm playing a
0: the game. Good job. I'm Evil. playing the wind. I'm <laughs> playing against <on> Sari bucks.
1: <laughs> so
3: the crane is true. It was called the field storsh, which means arrow stork, I guess, I don't know. They're different birds, but they called it an arrow stork. Probably sounds better. Or maybe they didn't have a word for crane. I don't know. And (laughs) as goofy as it seems, it's was widely cited from what I could find to be the discovery that helped us start to figure out where birds were going and the fact that they were even going anywhere in the first place. And it's still on display at the University of Rostock, which is in Germany, which is the university it was taken to when it was discovered in the first place. And since 1822, about 25 more
1: fieldstork specimens were discovered. I'm looking at a picture of the stork now, and I was imagining like a splinter. Oh, it's no, it's stuck right on yeah. through his neck. It's got a full arrow in it. <laughs> and it is adorned.
3: The thing I read said it was the wood that tipped him off, but the adornment probably also. The the carving yeah. helped.
2: Yeah. It does not seem pleasant, but I guess I no. could see how it
1: maybe survived and yeah, make it work. <laughs> and yeah. then he gets
3: freaking shot in Germany. Very yeah, sad, that's
0: the sad
1: ending of the story. Tries so
0: hard and then gets shot in Germany. And twenty-five <laughs> others that were shot once, yeah. survived, yeah. and then shot again and died.
3: Yeah. Mm. So Stefan, the blue Skua. <laughs> that story is not true at all. I made it all up. They do travel from Scotland to New Zealand and While I was trying to find other birds to lie about, I saw a painting of a family from Scotland going to New Zealand, and then I just let the old imagination take it from there. And (laughs) Amazon parrots, and almost every kind of parrot, Stefan was right, they don't migrate at all.
2: That's right. I should get a point for that. <laughs> there are two
3: types of parrot I found that do migrate, and they both migrate from Australia to Tasmania and back again. So not the farthest, but there
1: are two. Well, Sam, that was a banger. I loved it. And the <laughs> existence of the stork is something I will never forget. I only got one freaking point out of it, but whatever. <laughs> You'll survive. Now it's time to take a little break, and then it'll be time for the Fact Off.
3: Slash Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions?
1: Yeah. Oh, aspersions. One of those.
3: Yeah. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea
1: for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow if there's a constant drain on the bean. bean. That (laughs) is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond... I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling, (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans so they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd
3: buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) different kind of bean, I guess. A cheaper, more of a cheaper type of bean. You buy cheaper
1: beans with your expensive beans.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have.
0: (laughs) Subscription (laughs) companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting (laughs) money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your unwanted <laughs> subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T A N G E N T S.
1: show Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready to eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Life just goes and goes and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do and one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner to eat dinner one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then <sighs> buy this stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to this stuff you have to heat this stuff and put it in water and then afterwards you have to Hello, welcome back, everybody. Easy to tell you what the Sandbox score is right now because it's a four-way tie. <laughs> so it's down to me and Sari to figure out if we can, uh, which one of us might pull into the into the lead here because it's time for the fact-off where Sari and I have each brought facts to present to the others in an attempt to blow their minds. You each have a sandbuck to award the fact you like the most. And we're going to decide who goes first with this trivia question.
2: Salmon are famous for their upstream migration from the ocean to the creek bed where they were born. This is where they spawn, and then usually they also die there. While all Mm. Pacific salmon die after spawning, some individual Atlantic salmon, usually females, migrate back to the ocean and then repeat this migration and spawning process again. So what is the record number of spawns and thus complete river ocean river migrations for an Atlantic salmon that we
1: know of? Wow. Mm, Interesting. I didn't know this. And I'll just go first and say four.
0: I'm going to go with six.
1: Six. But what if it's five? If if, if it's five, then no one will have gotten (laughs) it right.
2: You
0: can't choose six. Uh, It's not allowed. Okay, seven.
2: The answer is seven, so oh, Sarah is wow. right on. <laughs> That's an old-ass fish. That's an old-ass fish, let me tell you. <laughs> That's a lot of times to say, fuck it, I'm not dying. Let's go one more time. <laughs>
1: I can do this again. Good for her. All right, Sarah, do you want to go first?
0: Yeah, my fact is related, so I think it'll be good. So, here are some things we know about American and European eels. One, they're in the family Anguillidae, with other freshwater eels. Two, they're long and snake-like, and have a mucousy sheen on the outside. Three, Beautiful. if you like seafood, they can taste good. Here are some things we don't know about the American and European eels: how they all migrate to the Sargasso Sea to mate and have babies, and honestly, what do they even do there? And how do the babies go back to where the adults came from? Scientists have been puzzled by their mating habits and migration habits for centuries. Aristotle, being the man that he was, said that eels must have spontaneously came from the earth like worms. Aristotle didn't know shit about
3: migration.
0: Uh, he was just like down. He, everything comes from below. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what's weird is our understanding isn't that much better than that. So until around the early 1900s, scientists and fishermen had pretty much only seen adult freshwater eels, but knew that they had to be babies at some point. So the Danish biologist Johannes Schmidt sort of made it his career's mission to figure out where the babies came from. So because no one had found baby eels in rivers, the next most logical place to look was the river mouth and the ocean. So he basically just sailed out to sea and cast nets until he caught smaller eels. In 1904, he caught a slightly smaller eel near Iceland. And then he just kept going further and further and catching tinier and tinier eels until around 1920-ish when he was like, I don't know, the smallest ones seem to be in the Sargasso Sea. (laughs) What? He just traced them back. Yeah. He just caught eels his entire adult life. What the weird thing is, though, in the Sargasso Sea, he never caught adults. So he was like, the babies are coming from here, but I've never caught an adult here. And the Sargasso Sea is a very weird place anyway, because it's just like a salty, deep part of the ocean with a particular kind of seaweed and no land borders. There are four swirling currents that define Mm -hmm. it. So it's a mysterious place. And then the eels are having mysterious sex there. (laughs) (laughs) Around 2012, scientists in Nova Scotia caught around 38 eels, so American freshwater eels, attached satellite tags and released a few of them each year in the fall of 2012, 2013, and 2014. Into the Atlantic. 30 of them were eaten by sharks or other things before they even made it into the open ocean. And eight successfully made it to the open ocean. And only one was tracked for the full 2,400 kilometers to the northernish part of the Sargasso Sea before their tracker got messed up. And this was very, very thrilling for scientists because it gave the first (laughs) conclusive evidence that American eels did migrate to the Sargasso Sea. Because in a separate five-year study published in 2016, European scientists tagged 707 eels and none of them made it to the Sargasso Sea. Only 80-ish made it to the open ocean. The rest of them got eaten, got lost, whatever. So apparently it's like very hard to track eels or there's a really high death rate. A side note, this is already weird, but I would like to point out how it's very weird to me that two different species go to the same part of the ocean to mate they're just like ah yes we have this evolutionary instinct to swim into this weird patch of ocean that Mm -hmm. is only defined by ocean currents and squirt our eggs and sperm in mix it together scientists call it panmixia because they just (laughs) think it's like a fertilization mess and we have no idea what it looks like because we've never seen it outside of a lab Then we don't know how these less muscular baby eels spend two to three years floating or swimming back towards freshwater rivers. There were a couple studies in Uh a lab and Norwegian fjords about how baby eels have some sort of magnetic navigation abilities that they hold until they're adults that probably steer them towards currents that help them toward their destination. But with all these adults dying and being eaten, how are the babies making it? I don't know. Eels are a mystery. And people are worried about this because humans are eating a lot of eels. So we got to start saving them, but we don't know how to save them without knowing where they are. And we don't know where any eels are, apparently.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so where's the Sargosa Sea?
0: In the Atlantic Ocean. It's like off the coast of Canada, like south of Iceland and like way farther away from Uh. Europe. So it's a shorter journey for the American eels Mm -hmm. than the European eels. And
3: they can't interbreed with each other, can they?
0: I don't know. I don't. Okay. I assume not because they're separate. It's fine to be separate species. But maybe okay. it's just like, I don't know if anyone has tried to mate uh, an American <laughs> eel and a European eel. Because if they're all mating in one big frenzy, who knows? Yeah. But maybe they have separate little pits.
1: Can I just follow an eel? Can I? <laughs> and then like chase off the sharks because apparently that's a big problem. And <laughs> Be like, you're my baby eel uh-huh. and I will sh- watch you day and night. It's like we need to follow the eel to the sex place mm-hmm. <laughs> okay is it my turn yeah <laughs> all right everybody so I didn't I don't know why I didn't know about army ants but I didn't know about army ants and they're there kinds of ants that are basically always either on the move or they're taking a brief break from being on the move a colony has two phases there is a 16 to 17 day nomadic phase where the ants are moving from place to place, and a 20-day stationary phase, where they have actually found a place to live and they will stay there for a while. The stationary phase is the part where they make more ants. The queen will lay her eggs and the larvae start to pupate. And when that phase is over, the colony, which ranges in size from 100,000 to 2 million ants, goes back to its nomadic state, carrying the the larvae around while also hunting for food. During the nomadic phase, the army ants go on foraging raids where you can see these like, meter long lines of ants spanning across the forest floor taking down whatever food they can find. But while they are in their nomadic phase, they don't have a place to relax and stay safe, except they do, they make a new nest at the end of every day. And that might sound like it'd be really cumbersome and really laborious. You have to find all the material to make it, but, army ants have found the perfect building material for their nests it's always available it's always ready to go and cooperative because they build their nests out of their own bodies (laughs) so they they these are called bivouacs and they uh, connect to each other using little hooks on their feet and the nests can vary with environment and with species But these living nests don't just allow the army ants to rapidly assemble and disassemble to get back on the road. They also actually, like, create the specific environments necessary for their young and their queen to make the next generation. They adjust as the colony moves through different stages of that process. Scientists have studied the thermal gradients of bivouacs. And early in the nomadic phase, there's more... Like it's hotter on the inside to protect the brood. And then there's a sharp temperature gradient as it gets out to the walls. And the bivouac is really tightly packed. And as the nomadic phase goes on, the larvae begin to mature and the colony starts being a looser bivouac structure, which creates a less sharp thermal gradient and it isn't as hot in the middle. Uh-huh. So even with this instability of their lifestyle, where they're always on the move, always trying out new stuff, army ants. Create an environment in which they can be safe and make the best, you know, situation for their uh, next generation of ants. When they
3: are having babies, is that two groups of army ants meeting or no?
1: No. Okay. No, so they have a queen and the queen is who is the the ant that gives, gives. So they like carry the queen around and try to keep her very, very safe. Okay. There's a whole thing uh, lots of research has gone into how they protect the queen during their constant moving around and so like there's a very specific part of the army ant train so like as they're traveling around they form these really long trains the thickest part is the part where the queen is and she's always in the middle extends out in front for a little ways and then behind it's thicker for even longer just in case like she falls behind they can keep her up because the main thing it seems like is they're worried about her getting lost, which does happen sometimes. And if you, if the queen just gets lost and you can't find her again, the army ants either die out or they have to go find another army ant clan to join with. And they're like, "We, we submit to your will and we will be part of your Whoa. army ant clan." We now.
0: lost our queen. Can we borrow yours? We'll help. Yeah. Jeremy there, he's really great at being a wall. Uh, Frank
1: loves the window. The way, so we, we have a lot to add to your house. This is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're migrating, you gotta have a place to sleep at night. I guess. And so you just build a house out of your friends. I guess so. <laughs> so will you go with Sari with her fact about knowing... So few details about the American and European eel migration, uh, besides the fact that they go to the Sargasso Sea and have babies somehow, in some way, and we have no idea, it's probably gross. Or my fact, where army ants make nests made up of army ants so that they can add some stability to their life on the go, which is also, according to you at least, gross. (laughs) (laughs)
3: This is maybe the hardest one ever. Yeah,
1: I don't know. Three, two... One, okay. Oh. I'm glad we split. All right, that works for me. Yeah, that works for me. It feels fair. All right, now it's time to ask the science couch. We've got some listener questions for our virtual couch of finely honed scientific minds. It's from at scared hippie who asks, "How are the trees doing? <laughs> are, are the forests migrating as well? Is that a good thing or a bad thing?" The main the main system of uh, of migration of forests, which is a thing is the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Hmm. And I would imagine that forests are migrating because the climate is changing, though I don't know if they will be able to migrate fast enough considering the speed at which that is occurring. Sari, do you have, am, how how is my bullshitting going? <laughs>
0: That's great, I don't have to do anything. You can just keep going and like, <laughs> what you're gonna say will probably be also the notes that I have on my screen because they are so far. <laughs> The, t- the two main forces that contribute to forest migration are seed dispersal in one direction and then population retreat because of some sort of environmental selection in the other direction. Mm. And so that has happened in natural ways, like the climate becoming less favorable for those trees or like beetles eating them or, or I don't know, pre- predators in, in the way that plants yeah. can have predators, things that eat them. Or climate changing, but also now that humans are here, then deforestation and like more rapid climate change are affecting what is a a pleasant place for a
1: tree to be. Obviously, deforestation is a pretty uh, intentional, you know, force for forest migration, but so could reforestation be. Mm. Like if if we're in a situation where certain forests don't make ecological sense in the place where they are anymore, because like there's not as much water or the Temperature is different. You could theoretically imagine us being like, okay, well, we're going to put the plants that would eventually move into this area. We're just going to make them move there now. So we could be like, you guys can migrate faster Mm -hmm. because we can just drop seeds down.
0: Yeah, but they have a term for that. The scientists, they call that assisted migration, just like the humans (laughs) giving a forest a helping hand you'll like it here I promise yeah,
1: yeah. in a couple of decades we've done the math mm-hmm. so
3: how are the trees doing are they okay
0: I think they're in, in the same state of of troubled as the rest of the planet they don't feel worried though so that's
1: uh, that's a plus yeah i not gonna see it th- coming th- thanks for bringing a little little uh, j- happiness a little <laughs> silver lining to that cloud yeah the trees are fucked but they don't know that <laughs>
0: Ignorance is bliss, and that's a tree. That's the, the First spoken by a tree.
1: <laughs> if you want to ask the Science Couch your question, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we will tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at Dorky Homestead, at Sneffin, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this episode. Final sandbox scores. Sari and I tied for the lead with Sam and Stefan coming in behind, which means that Stefan is still in the lead. And Sam and I are now tied. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I may, I'm, I'm not Coming last. <laughs> well, I am last. I'm tied for last. Yeah. <laughs> if you like this show and you want to help us out, it's very easy to do that. You can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show. And also oftentimes just brings joy to our hearts. Second, you can tweet out your favorite moment from the episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for Sci-Show Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley.
3: I've been Stefan Chin, (laughs) and I've been Sam Schultz.
1: Sizha Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroshima Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paola Garcia-Pieto. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph tuna Medish, And we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted.
2: But one more thing. So in winter, Rome is sometimes covered in white, but not the white of snow. It is the white of bird poop produced by flocks of starlings that can get into the millions. The starlings Mm. are migrating down from northern Europe to Rome and their poop storms can get so bad that people are walking around with umbrellas on otherwise nice days to shield themselves, <laughs> and they have to deploy special cleanup procedures to make the roads less slick because they oh. have oh. an increase in, like, skidding oh, accidents.
3: No. Oh, no. What, do they have to hose the whole city down after, uh, after special it? Special
2: cleanup procedures.
1: Okay. <laughs>